Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. As you'll hear in just a minute, Lex Pelger is making a few changes in his life, and some of which we'll see here in the salon. Now, I should remind you that while Lex has been the anchor that has kept these podcasts coming to you from the salon when I've been able to slow down a bit, well, there still will be opportunities for you and other saloners to also produce programs for the Salon 2.0. And eventually we'll figure out a way to make it easy for people to submit their programs. But as of right now, the only other offers of programs for us have come from some of the musicians in the audience who are using Terrence McKenna soundbites in their work. And while I've really enjoyed the submissions that I've received, this, unfortunately for them, isn't a music program. But if you've got other ideas that you think would fit and would like to submit, then uh, let me know via the comments section on our website, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. One other little thing that I should clear up is how we go about funding these programs. As I've done for over 12 years now, I accept donations for the salon in general, and all of that money goes directly into expenses associated with the salon. In case you're wondering, that comes to a little over $3,000 a year, and for the past eight years, those expenses have been covered by a small number of our fellow saloners who, from time to time, send a little donation in. The other thing that you've been hearing about is Patreon, which is a web-based service that allows people to donate anything from $1 a month and on up to support individual artists, like myself when I'm in writing mode. <laughs> well, currently on my personal Patreon account, there are 27 patrons who collectively send me a total of $222 a month, and that money I've been using for personal expenses. And while that amount may not seem huge, well, to me it's become a really important part of keeping me from tapping what is left of my small savings. And while a few of my patrons have had to reduce their monthly amount or stop altogether, their names will still be featured in the new book that I'm writing, and, thanks to all of my patrons, it will be released directly into the public domain, which means that anyone who wants a copy can get it free in electronic format and for cost plus shipping in paperback. Now, in just a minute, you'll also hear Lex Pelger talk about his personal Patreon account, and that is working the same way for him. We each have our own patrons who are supporting us for diverse reasons, and I'm sure that I speak for Lex here as well when I say that a donation as small as $1 a month still is very important to us in that it lets us know that there are people who are willing to support our creative work month in and month out. To me, it feels like a small family on Patreon, and on top of the financial support, I've been giving my patrons advanced copies of my work, and their comments are already influencing the way this new book is coming together. Now, getting past all of this financial stuff, let me say that I realize how hard it is for most of our fellow saloners to even make a small donation. I know because I've been there myself more than once. But the most important thing that anyone can do to support both the Salon 1 and Salon 2 is to tell your friends about these podcasts. Posting comments on your social media feed is the same as paying for advertising, in my opinion. 
So don't think that you need to contribute money to these endeavors to be a part of our clan. Spreading the word is even more important in my opinion. Now, at long last, I'm finally done talking, and so we can get to today's Salon 2 program, in which Lex Pelger interviews one of my closest friends, Dr. Bruce Damer. Bruce has been responsible for a significant amount of the material that you and I have listened to here in the Salon, and he's been my co-host here on over 30 occasions. This is a non-nonsense production. If you like what you hear and want to help us make the Salon 2.0 bigger and better, sign up to support this work monthly on Patreon.com. As a two-person production, any help goes a long way. Join us at Patreon.com slash non-nonsense. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Before we get to the always wonderful Dr. Bruce Damer, the scientist, mystic, computer historian, and beloved lecturer of the psychedelic circuit, we've got some big changes to announce here on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. You're already hearing our new intro with music by my friend Daniel Lowe, whose work I'll be linking to in the episode notes. And with everything mixed by Matt Payne, the audio magician behind this whole show, who also crafted the new transition sounds we'll be using. And to keep it all in the family, my girlfriend Claire is the source of our new intro and outro pitch for Patreon. And you better believe that once our daughter is here and gets big enough to help, she'll be in the studio cleaning microphones. Because of these big life changes, moving to Boulder, Colorado, getting a real job so I can afford this little baby girl, and other shifts of life, it means that it's time for me to step down as the host of Symposia's live stage. My hat goes off to Brian and Mike and the rest of the team. They'll keep pulling together great events and running the Symposia magazine. Symposia.com will remain a place where people can write their story. While Matt and I focus on this podcast, a place where people can say their story. So now, we'll be running the Psychedelic Salon 2.0 under the banner of No Nonsense Productions. Besides this salon, the No Nonsense Project includes the Psychedelic History Project, where we're digitizing out Timothy Leary's archives, as well as publishing my graphic novel series about the endocannabinoid system, based on Moby Dick. Hence our name, because, as Melville says in the affidavit, I tell ye, the sperm well will stand no nonsense. If you want to help support Matt and I continuing this work, even a small amount of monthly support on Patreon adds up. If you send in $2 a month or $5 a month, I'll send you digital copies of my books. And for higher levels of support, you'll get books in the mail, signed and stamped, plus shout-outs on the podcast, other gifts, and free sperm whale tattoos, if desired. We also have the No Nonsense newsletter, if you'd like to sign up for our occasional updates with the big news. With signing up for that, you'll get a digital copy of my queer chapter on Reagan, AIDS, and the birth of medical marijuana. Most of all, we're happy to be part of this community, and we appreciate all the kind words and offers of help we get via email or on the road. Right now, it's Matt handling the audio and me handling the interviews. 
But if anyone out there likes helping with social media or in other ways, you can email me at pelger at gmail.com. That's P-E-L-G-E-R at gmail.com. And as always, I'm happy to hear your comments on the show, leads on who to interview, and the people with stories that need to be shared. I promise that every email gets read and almost everyone gets responded to. Just not the crazy ones. And I have seen some doozies. If you're convinced that we are a CIA operation, you should see our budget. Finally, we have lots of ideas for taking the show to the next level. So if you know any companies who would want to sponsor this podcast, or private donors who share our vision would like to help take the Psychedelic Salon 2.0 forward, as well as helping out with Lorenzo's retirement fund, please let us know. So that's all the announcements for this week, except for one. Because this week's interview was recorded in Bruce Damer's barn, amidst the boxes of Leary clippings from the Psychedelic History Project. And that makes it the perfect time to give a thank you shout out to the Lakey sisters, Alexa and Kat, as well as Alexa's husband, Jaron West. They're new friends who reached out because of this podcast and helped out with their time and a nice scanner for capturing much of the 1,500 items we managed to scan in. They were the creators responsible for that masterful remix of Charlie Chaplin's speech from The Great Dictator, which goes viral every few years. We'll link to that in the notes, as well as their new Moving Psychedelic Art on Instagram. Now, with the announcements complete and the shout-out shouted, I'm pleased to introduce that lovely soul, Dr. Bruce Damer. Some of you might have seen him on the lecture circuit, where his mix of science and mysticism is a perfect fit to soften the Shogunistas and to ground the McKennaites. Or you might have heard him on his Levity Zone podcast. But you might not know that he works with NASA on projects like asteroid capture technology and deciding where to land rovers on other planets. And in other accomplishments, while I was there in Santa Cruz staying on his bus no further, Dr. Damer's Scientific American cover story came out with his theory on the origin of life. Using Darwin's original insight of life forming in hot pools, he visualized the entire prebiotic world until he could run a simulation in his head that showed him how life could have clumped together from that original swirl of minerals. It's taken that scientific field by storm, and we'll link to the article in the episode notes. As a friend of Terence McKenna, a hero to the vintage computer movement, and an old-fashioned gentleman, I'm pleased to give you a talk with Dr. Bruce Damer. Growing up in Canada where you did, what did you hear about drugs when you were young? What was the opinion like around you? Well, you know, we we didn't have any um no, I was, uh, so in 1970, I was eight, and it wasn't really part of our world. I, I remember across from our school, uh, there was like a real actual hippie colony, and we were sort of, oh, don't go over there. I kind of wish I had, because it was, it was itinerant young people, because Canada kind of picked up the end of the hippie revolution and carried in into the 70s, because it... Canada didn't have a war it was fighting, didn't have an anti-Vietnam war, it didn't have the same race issues. It was a civil society, so it didn't have that kind of, I mean, there wasn't, Canadians weren't protesting their government. Their government wasn't doing 
stupid things for the most part. We had the the crisis in Quebec, the constitutional crisis, the Front pour la Libération de Québec, which was trying to it was it turned into an armed insurrection actually. So in 1970, they uh, it was kidnappings, and there was a sort of police standoff, um, and that was kind of that was the October crisis it was called it was it was a reasonably serious thing for Canada to go through <clears throat> the FLQ. And that led to a political party getting into power in 1976 that held referendums and the PQ in Canada didn't break apart because people voted against it twice. So that's how sort of Canada's social emergence was happening. And in, in those years, you know, we were switching to the metric system. We were switching to bilingualism, multiculturalism. And Canada sort of had 20-year plans. You know, Pierre Trudeau was prime minister for 18 years. Um, at one point in school, I mean, this is show how non-hippie, you know, and things were. I mean, because it was a civil society, people, their beliefs was, you know, equal treatment of everybody, the raising of the standard for all, all um, investment in, in public, the public. Uh and and the country was a, was potentially going to break up. And I remember Pierre Trudeau being on TV saying, "Well, you have to decide what you want. Do you want ten countries? Do you want five countries? Do you want one country? Just you know, <clears throat> just decide." You know, and no no American leader would have ever said such a thing. And and in our in our elementary school, there were like charts on the wall showing the different possible future configurations of Canada broken up. The Maritimes would be one country. Quebec would be another one. Alberta would join the U.S. because it was so full of cattlemen and oilmen. And it was sort of the most American part of of uh, of Canada. And British Columbia would link up with the Yukon. Or, you know, who knows? It didn't happen. But So, so Canada's, Canada's issues were different. So we had a... I mean, there was sort of a hippie revolution uh, a little bit, say, on most on the West Coast. Um... But the hippies were sort of proper and well-behaved and probably took regular baths. And so the drug use, I mean, certainly there was there was pot. I mean, I remember in high school, high school students were growing pot uh, in between spruce trees to, to hide it out in the, in, in the forests around Kamloops. There was pot plantations. We sort of just heard about them. We didn't really know much. And I wasn't out the back of the school trying to score pot. It was the last thing on my mind. You know, I was, I was a really serious student. I was the front of the classroom kind of getting straight A's type student trying to do everything right by the system and advance and advance myself and drawing cartoons and writing essays for universities. And, you know, so there, there wasn't, uh, there was, and I'm, I know I'm going on and on here, but in grade six or seven, there was a film shown uh, about, you no, know, you know what? It was a film shown about uh, tobacco, and it was a scare tactics film, and it showed people's like dissected lungs that died of of uh, tobacco, lung cancer. That was the scariest thing that I ever saw. I think it was trying to get us not to take up cigarettes. But there wasn't really 
I mean, I think that there was there was one film showed to us that showed like really whacked out people taking super colorful pills and something like that around 1974 or 75, but it didn't leave much of an impression. But this this lung cancer thing sure did. My God, it was like it was terrifying. It was traumatizing. It was really kind of kind of stupid, but it, it actually you know you know. Uh, probably dissuaded people from smoking cigarettes yeah and since it's the biggest killer as far as drugs go Mm -hmm. you know it's a good question how far do you go with this anti uh drug stuff when sometimes the drugs you know all drugs have some form of harm to them and need messages like that yeah um i remember you know everything sort of happened in this the u.s and the u.s is sort of this great big nut nutty basket case of a country to the south and the whole idea was uh crazy things happened there um and crazy experiments on the population and they had weird beliefs like americans had this term called liberty and for us as for me maybe for other canadians was like this makes no sense whatsoever this term liberty it seemed like a slogan like it seemed like the kind of propaganda you heard in the Soviet Union, really pretty much the same. Um, you know, give me liberty or give me death. I mean, what compare kind of comparison is that? You know, does that mean that you're going to kill other people to get this thing called liberty? And what does liberty get you? You know, what does it mean? What are the controls on liberty? I mean, you just can't have liberty. The society can't work. You know, so it... And it turns out that was a radical Whig term. Um, so the radical Whigs, radical Whigism took over, it created the American Revolution. And recently, articles and books have been written that question whether the American Revolution was a mistake or not. Because where America's ended up is really a failure compared to a Canada. You know, we've got racism, we've got terrible economic disparities we've got terrible leadership non-representative government waste wasteful wars high murder rates you know we've got high achievement in many sectors but it's not a successful society uh, for the average person and the average person is working way too many jobs can never get ahead you know there's been economic enslavement again and this has happened several times in the history of America. It's, America's never really been a su- very successful country for individuals that are living here. Because then you get people with concentrating power and you you get periods where you have civil infrastructure gets built and then you have periods where it gets taken apart. So in the 80s, the so-called Republican Revolution wiped out social safety nets for people with mental health problems. You know, it created the war on drugs. You know, did all these things that were super counterproductive. So the American system is not very effective. And so these these books that compare, say, how Australia is governed or Denmark or any any of the democracies. America is not a democracy and never has been. It's never represented individuals in government, or very rarely. Um, you know, quote, quote, unquote, it's a republic, but it has all these layers to prevent individuals from having influence. When I was sworn in as a U.S. citizen, and I know this is turning into a rant, you know, this was a drug question, um, 
the federal judge said you don't have a democracy at the national level. It's it's closed to you. You do have it at the local. So sign your voter registration card. This is a thousand people being sworn in. And then the year two thousand election happened. Of course, that was true. There were, it's like what a what a what a complete farce that was. You know, and it's only two parties, and 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 there's manipulation of voting procedures, and there's no oversight. There's no oversight committee to to nullify that election. And to basically fire those parties and fire all those officials, you know, they should have never had their jobs. You know, in, in a in a real country, there's a vote, an electoral commission that would have the power to relieve all these people of their duties. You know, and there's a, an idea of responsibility, not just manipulation, to get what you want and push your man into into power. So it's ludicrous. So so the United States. The irony is it's a, it's a failed state in a lot of ways. In, in, in significant ways, it's a failed state. But be, living in a failed, a failed or constantly failing state means there's flexibility, means that immigrants can come in and push their way up and create Google. Or things like the drug revolution, the psychedelic revolution, can get started here get clamped down upon and then have a resurgence. You can have people like Maps and Hefter that can gradually push into the system and get their research done because they can use the same kind of manipulation and tactics because no one's running the show here. You can eventually get your agenda put on the table. You can get gay marriage. You can get legalized weed. Uh, if If you work the system well enough, you can get your agenda. It's messy and it may take decades. But in really conservative societies like, say, France, it could only be done if it was decided by the civil service to do it. You know, um, those are very conservative societies that don't have a kind. There's not that many cracks in in them. Culturally, people just are negative, or they're not open to change. They're open to habit, but not change. And America's got so many holes in it that that these incredible experiments can happen. I can live like I do here on Ancient Oaks Farm, this very bizarre, non-standard life, lifestyle. I couldn't get away with this in, in, in Sweden. Or the, the only way that I could, I could get away with this in one of those countries is to be a known eccentric and, and artist and put a lot of effort into that. Um, if I, I couldn't do this in, in Singapore or Japan, you know, but there's this freedom here in in basically what is a partially failed country. Always, it, it never never quite tightly managed. And because it isn't tightly managed, it, it goes off the rails all the time, but then it allows wackadoodle things to happen. So it, I call it the laboratory rat maze, where the rats are being driven mad in the maze, but some of them are mad geniuses. And some of them learn how to climb the walls of the maze. Others are manipulating. Others are driving, like, the media here. Or fake news media drives rats crazy and for its own benefit, for its own entertainment. But then there's this crazy character that does the most bizarre things, like these, like Burning Man. This is the bizarre invention, you know. It wouldn't have happened anywhere else. And especially to be hearing that here right around the Boulder Creek area, because you call it the psychedelic shire around here, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mainly because of its its lineage. So up the road, we have Ken Kesey's house up on Skyline, 15, 20 minutes that way. A lot started at that house in La Honda. Then uh, down the road, uh, you have the first site of the first acid test, which is commemorated by a bus stop in Soquel, on Soquel Avenue, commemorated by the county of Santa Cruz a year and a half ago, and, and it has a picture of further on it and, you know, Neil Cassidy and whatever, and it says the bus came along and you get on the bus. I mean, this is like a Santa Cruz thing. They're proud that Ken Babs and Kesey and, and then the Grateful Dead were founded that night, and they were proud of this anniversary of the first asset test. I mean, this is not your standard American city or county. And then here in this valley, you have all these people that, we have Ralph Abraham up on the ridge here. It was well known to listeners from the trialogues, good friend of Terrence McKenna's and Rupert Sheldrake. You know, a well-known psychedelic mathematician who helped revolutionize uh, mathematics, chaos theory and strange attractors and all that. You know, anybody who created strange attractors must have been pretty, pretty strange himself. But then you have Nick Herbert, you know, just around the corner. And you have all these people. Android Jones used to live a, a half a mile from here at Penny Sling, Penny and Duran's, Penny Slinger Hills place. For two years, there was his van driving around Boulder Creek. I'd see him in the New Leaf and the van with his artwork on the side. And this is normal. I mean, nobody looks. And then all around here are burners and you know, uh, and maps. Maps is just down the road in Santa Cruz, and many of the maps people live up here because it's the woods. The, some of the first communes were here. Holiday Holiday's Commune on Holiday Road in Ben Loman. It was a set of of cabins, and and I think the whole place was rented for fifty dollars a month. And so hippies set up a commune there in 1966, which had. Um, Basically, if you were in the Haight-Ashbury, you could take this holidays bus, a painted bus, down, went on a regular basis to take kids out of the Haight-Ashbury to holidays where they could wash their bodies naked in, in, the, in the river, in the San Lorenzo River, and, and they could live a life. They could come to this beautiful natural area, kind of like Gary Snyder had done out in, in the Nevada City area on the ridge there. Uh, in North San Juan, he he was the pioneer of going back to the land, living out there. But the the hippies of the hate and Hate Ashbury was an unpleasant place for a lot of them. There were people with serious uh, mental illness problems, physical illness problems that were lining up for the the free clinic. It was unpleasant. Uh, housing was irregular. Food was irregular. I mean, these kids were getting money sent from home. I mean, there was no. It wasn't a sustainable model in the Haight-Ashbury. So for a few of them to get on the bus and go down to holidays, and there was food, there were little triangular circle things that were done. There was a a blonde girl who looks like she's straight out of a Midwestern suburb, and she was called the Angel from the Haight, and she'd bring in giant bags of acid tabs to hand out. And there, there's a film actually on, I put it online on the Internet Archive, seven chapters that, that, that illustrate. It was shot by Pierre Sogol, Sogol in 1966 and 67. 
I just posted it on social media, the one that shows the bus going to holidays. And, and you can see the bus literally driving down Skyline, and then there's shots of it turning left in, at Ben Lomond at Highlands Park and getting there, and there's life in the commune. And, you know, the, so Santa Cruz is ground zero is away in the psychedelic uh, world because you had these people that, you know, turned on to psychedelics. It created Pacific High School, which was a very revolutionary high school. They created a home birthing movement here. They created organic farming started here at Camp Joy in Boulder Creek. Snyder's, uh, is it Alan Chadwick's farm? That started the North American, um, he was he studied uh, the German fellow, the Swiss fellow, Steiner, right? And so he started organic farming, which is now a huge industry started here and uh like i said homeschooling and and the community the the psychedelicists ralph abraham writes the beautifully in his book hip santa cruz so if you want a wonderful view of of how central santa cruz is in not only the psychedelic revolution but also social revolutions and innovations it's in hip santa cruz because Ralph interviewed dozens of people over 15 years in this project called the Hip Santa Cruz Project, and I held three or four story circles here to collect stories. Some, sometimes sitting in my bus, which is called No Further, at the top, in honor of Kesey's bus. And, and that Hip Santa Cruz talks about how people that turned on with these powerful medicines created social revolutions. They went directly into the community and they turned Santa Cruz from a conservative beach town, very locked down, kind of very uninteresting place. The University of California came in. Ralph Abraham came here and rented that Victorian house and created this alternate, weird, polyamorous, drug-taking community but he was a professor at the university and he created this whole scene. I think they rented the house for a dollar a year and he created a whole scene. And, and then there was Paul Lee here and, and they created sort of a revolution on campus for uh, how to learn. And they created like alternate learning outside of campus, even though they were campus people. And then the community got up, got organized and it created this wonderful bookstore it created the catalyst. It created the hip pocket bookstore that was Peter Demma. Then on the coast, they were going to build all these condos and shopping malls right by the lighthouse. And these hipsters got together and fought it to the ground and turned it into this fantastic open meadows with Monterey cypress and everything. It's like the old is preserved. And, and now <clears throat> you can see the monarch butterflies come Otherwise, it would have been just another stupid shopping mall. So Santa Cruz is where psychedelic heads pushed back and said, no, we don't believe in building another shopping mall or a bunch of condos for some developer to take away our heritage and all this beauty. And they, they fought back and they preserved something for all time. Uh, and it was it was them and only them that, that did that, that that realize we can re-engineer this thing and work, rework this thing. And so you've got this whole this whole ethos that goes back to the mid-60s here, this layer of people who are still around, who invented all this stuff that got exported all over the United States. And, and this little Bear Creek Valley is 
you know, kind of in a way that I call it a psychedelic shire, but because you find these fuzzy, fuzzy footed, bearded people like Fred McPherson here, you know, that are like hobbits. I mean, they live in hobbit houses. Um, maybe not, a lot of them don't do psychedelics anymore, but they, they have that whole, that whole patina, that whole radiant aura around them have, that, that wouldn't be there if they hadn't. And, uh, whether it was communes or acid or experimental this or that or experimental music groups or um, experiments in food and in, in caring ch- for children, they just pushed all the limits and, and they reinvented the way it was to live in America. And we talked about how crazy America is. It didn't come and clamp down on that. It just absorbed that and it became the norm. And so that's what we owe uh, these original Shire <laughs> Middle Earth hobbits uh, for ah uh, crazy the hobbits. Um, now, did your psychedelic journey start around here? Well, yeah, yes and no. In that um, I was not, I I avoided psychedelics, um, and I still, you know, I can't say I have a, a huge amount of experience of them. Uh, but Terence showed up one day in here at the farm in 1998. Uh, with Ralph Abraham and Finn, his son Finn McKenna. And I'd been sort of emailing him with him and corresponding with him for a couple of years. He actually mentioned me on the Art Bell show at one point. You know, it was like, he mentioned my name and it's kind of, somebody sent me a, a tape of that later that Art Bell had, anyway, but whatever. So there he was, and I was um sort of interested in having him come and present at one of our events. Uh, didn't materialize, but he wanted to come and be with me because I was the maven, the expert on avatars in virtual world cyberspace, which for Terrence was fascinating uh, because this was landscapes, visible landscapes. These are multi-user worlds like you'd see in World of Warcraft or Second Life or something. It was the early phase of them. I or I organized a community that was building all that, and I created the first conferences. I wrote their first book to kickstart it. And, you know, I like Snow Crash, like everybody else, the Neil Stevenson novel. So there he was sitting, they came in and, you know, I met Terrence and um, he sat at the glass table that's still there in the house. And he, uh, I put him in front of a big, big monitor and put him into Traveler, which is a world with big talking heads with other people's voice and it would lip sync them to Terrence and then we went into these massive landscapes and hours and hours of this and he was pretty blown away and he turned to Finn and was like well we have to get the PC because he, he just had some dumb Mac which wasn't multitasking you know, Macs were pretty bad in, in those days so Finn was going to buy a PC and they were going to take it in their luggage to, back to Hawaii and Terrence said that time we made a date so there were two two three dates were made one was i wasn't going to go to palenque mexico i don't know why i didn't nobody knew how sick terrence actually was at the time um so i wasn't going to palenque but after palenque he was going to uh, meet me and host me in hawaii for a couple of weeks at his house so um and at the time, well, well, I thought now's the time. So 
Terence arranged uh, because I realized Terence's brain is not scrambled and I had avoided anything of that nature because I used something called endo, uh, which I call now endo, but I could go into these states, what Terence called on the natch, naturally, as every little nine-year-old kid can do, I mean, in imaginal worlds. And I'd used that ability to create these immensely rich internal worlds that ran themselves, uh, and many in parallel. I used that to build my career, whether it's writing 100,000 lines of code, visualizing that as a machine, drawing spacecraft, doing virtual worlds. It was, it was always using that internal uh, reality. And here's a man, though, that uh, took, you know, medicinal things or elixirs, I like to call them. He took elixirs and explored worlds of his own of that it came through the elixirs. So I was very interested in that. And I decided uh, now's the time because we're going to be comparing notes. You know, we're going to do something together. So he, through channels, provided me access to my first experience, which was very intense and made his hair more curly than it was when I told him what happened. That's, you know, for another day. But then, um, so I had that experience on my own in the wilderness. Um, And kind of, it was kind of a rebirth. It was kind of a, it was kind of what I expected, but it was very, when I came out of it, I felt I don't need to strive anymore. I'm done. I'm complete as a human being. Uh, of course, I went on to strive, <laughs> worry, and fuss, and make money to pay off the farm and things like you know, do all that. But for a, a, a brief time, I was like, I'm now complete as a human being, from what I just what I witnessed and experienced and became. Um, I don't think Terence ever went to the place I went to, and I mean that not facetiously at all. I don't think he went to that place because uh, I never heard it in any subsequent stories, this type of place. Um, but then Jim Essex and I arrived in in Hawaii in Kailua, Kona, rented a car, drove up the terrible road to, I think Terrence came and picked us up initially and we went to his house. Uh, I actually, I think I slept outside but we did this experiment from his house where we were going to run the virtual worlds on his newly acquired Windows machine, much more advanced than his Mac, you know, surprisingly. Um, and off this dish on the roof is a military-grade, military-produced technology to bring wireless internet 40 megabit from the ISP in Kailua to Terrence, the top of Terrence's house, so that he could be on the mountain and be online. And he he always he laughed. He said, "You know, military technology is connecting me to the you know. Imagine you know. So all you conspiracy theorists out there, yes, the Pentagon equipped Terrence with this dish so that he could muddle your minds and destroy another generation of of." Uh, potential troublemakers. Anyway, but the dish would actually pop in the morning, so you had to had to wait until the sun hit it to warm it up to give it the right shape. And so you couldn't use the internet until it had acquired the right shape. 
and you had to run the generator uh, to get enough juice to run it. So it was a non-trivial thing. You had to go out where there were bales of hay and to try to block the noise and turn on the generator to juice the house up in order to run the PCs and and the and the the net connection. And you couldn't do voiceover because there was a lot of delay. So we literally, for several days, we sat, you know, I, I had an odd smoke with him, um, but he complained bitterly about the pot, the terrible Hawaiian pot, and had asked, did I bring Trinity gold? Did I bring, you know, his, my kingdom, oh, my kingdom for some Trinity gold because the pot was so bad in Hawaii. And he was just a, you know, a chronic regular user. I mean, so um, and then came the great day where Finn had built this hyperboreal gate, which was a teleport to this wonderful world built by a fellow named Factor. And it was a tryptamine, DMT-inspired, low resolution, but very convincing avatar space in active worlds, the platform. And Terrence took groups of people through the hyperboreal gate there's a video of this online. You can see clips of this. Um, it's called Terrence McKenna on the Natch. Um, but he took people through this gate that Finn had built, and Finn guided him, and he had used the avatar named Zone Ghost. Zone Ghost. And I read in a letter, I acquired a collection of letters from Terrence, over 15 years of letters, some of the only documents left from Terrence McKenna's life because the rest were destroyed in the fire of 2007. <clears throat> and in the letter, uh, this is earlier than, like this is like five years before, he said, I would like to be a zone ghost in cyberspace and meet my tiny audiences <laughs> online so I don't have to travel. Because he had told Gemini that I'm just so tired, I'm so tired. Uh, I don't know what's going on, I'm just so exhausted. And he looked bad, he looked pale. And we didn't know he was ill. Um, he actually told us, I'm having dreams I can't explain. They're so strange. They're so strange. He was very troubled. And that was the that was the oncoming seizure that was about to erupt. Because my sister had a similar brain cancer. And when they erupt, the seizure just, it's unbelievable. When they announce their arrival, these big brain tumors. And that happened six weeks later, I think. And Christy had to drag him into the pickup truck and get him off the mountain. It was a horrific experience. It really was. But th this was just before that eruption. So we did this hyperboreal gate and Terrence on the the PC and talking to people and doing hunt and peck type, typing. If you'll notice he in the video, he just uses two-finger typing. So this man of words, this man of joycey and skill... He was a hunt and peck typist. And when he typed, you know, this is turning into a Terrence Fest, but whatever, this is what your audience wants. So when he, when he types, his tongue moves. So he, he would talk about, later I found, he would talk about the genius of a certain, was it St. Augustine, who could actually memorize, he could read books without mouthing the words as he was reading them, right? This was an amazing achievement for the 12th century that 
and a person could memorize a book and, and, and do it back, but he could actually read without mouthing out the words because that's how people read. But Terence, when Terence Hunt and Peck typed, he was always moving his lips and his tongue. He was doing this, you know, he was he was embodying the words really in a way. But I don't know how on earth he was able to write four books in one year, which actually did occur, I think, in 1991 or two. I think he had three books that came out in one year. They must have all been in preparation. But there he is doing his thing. He's making faces into the camera because his avatar is projected every second or two onto a screen in the world as people people's avatars are milling about. But he's this gray alien zone ghost. And he had a fantastic time. I mean, he was it was his dream come true. It was visible landscapes made by language in cyberspace. He felt he was there. He was taking groups into this trippy world and then taking them back out and then they would report on what it was like. So the goal that we had was to compare his tryptamine-induced worlds with these low-res first avatar worlds and and compare them. And that I had entered his world. I could I didn't really comment much about it. I I told him what happened and he was sort of curled back. <laughs> it was very intense. Um but we mainly we mainly focused on on this. And uh Terrence um I so that morning I think after we had done it, I said, So what what how how does it compare? How what was your experience? And he turned to me and he said it's not unlike DMT. It's not unlike DMT. And that, that was an interesting endorsement, in a sense, of the power, or the transformative power of these worlds. And now we have super advanced VR that if, if Terrence could try that, he would just be floored. I mean, it's so beautiful, VR today. This is stunning. I mean, it's, you know, tilt brush and all these worlds and things like that. It's just, it is truly a psychedelic experience. Without the body involvement that psychedelics has, a, a, a visual sort of sort of thing. And you got to see a lot of the, I mean, with the, the Digibarn here and the history of computing that you've assembled uh, here in Boulder Creek, you've seen a lot of the psychedelics and how they're related to this computer revolution through your work. Yeah, I mean... Uh, so in a sense, because I collected these Leary papers that we're surrounded by, we're sitting in the middle of, I, I don't know why, when I, when I, I was always fascinated with that time. So like I absorbed books like Joan Didion's books about this period and um, electric Kool-Aid acid tests for some reason. And I read that years and years ago, but I was fascinated by this group of individuals who really went on a magical mystery tour. They recovered something. They went fearlessly into this incredible space. It wasn't outer space. They weren't going to the moon. They were going to another space that was in some ways more impactful for humanity, which was the full ungluing of habit and cultural conditioning and even your own sense of balance, for God's sakes, and the fact you can see anything. 
and they were willing to they were willing to smush their neurons so that they could crack open and let what come let what may come and uh, do it in a community and do it with their art and do it with things that had really no history in human use and just experiment and it was like one of the greatest and the the, the cultural products they made were more beautiful not only like the home birth movement or or preserved parks or community centers or organic farming but the arts and the music was so powerful from that period you know 1965 to early 70s there was such juice and power in that that has never been reproduced i mean it's funny because in at the grammys when you get somebody like justin timberlake all these incredibly weak thin soup people that have really there's nothing going on right with them nothing some of them are pimped up prostitutes, basically. Galen's Galen's nephew writes half the songs for these kids, right? He's like the song crafter, and it's all garbage. And but when when you have the Grammys and you have one of them up there, and you have somebody like, you know, a a, a big breasted, beautiful black, powerful woman singer from I forget which one. She was up one year, and they're all fawning over her saying we're not there's the real one you know and she's in her 70s and it wasn't lena horn it was um like tina turner or somebody like that which, who had the full power and the current generation because they're so co-opted by money and stupidity and, and mon- mundanity um they know where the real power is and it, it's these groups from the 60s and into the 70s, they 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 collect connected to the electricity, and and a big part of that was was acid, and and the drugs that opened them up. Without that, you would have had sort of late 1950s kind of, you know, you'd have you'd have nice tunes, but you wouldn't have had tremendous. You wouldn't have lizard power, you know, coming through like Jim Morrison, and you know, none of that. So, um, you can feel it. You know, and you can see it, and in these articles that, that the complete, you know, bewilderment of America, and all these newspaper reporters, what is going on? And it exploded in about eighteen months, between about sixty-six and sixty-eight. The thing just is a nuclear blast. It was like a cultural, psycho-spiritual nuclear explosion. Um, and 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 nothing like that has happened since. I mean, one of the, um, Paul McCartney was quoted as saying that the 1960s, particularly the second half of the 60s, were so avant-garde. You know, people like Penny Slinger were doing her thing, um, swinging London and whatnot, and movies like Clockwork Orange, you know. They were so avant-garde that it was like a, 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 a decade plucked from the mid to late 21st century and stuck into the 20th. Because it was so out of place, it was so out of place, so much change, so much was was a was achieved, so many barriers broken down in just months, you know, and and it took the powers that be and or conservatives or whatever or just exhausted politicians and and sheriffs. It took them thirty years to really put it back in the bottle, and they never quite could. I mean, women were never going to be treated the way they were again. And, 
gays were going to get their rights and people were going to talk about the environment and it was, you know, they were never going to quite put it back in. Um, but it ran out of steam. It, it exhausted itself. It was so intense. It had to. It, you know, R. Crumb has this wonderful drawing that he produced, I think, in the 70s, which showed the crashing of the wave. And it showed this wave of people, including hippies smoking and all that sort of stuff. It's like a, a cresting tsunami hit, heading toward this wall. And this is a wall of blocks. And on the wall is inscribed a triangle. And under it, it says E Pluribus Unum which is what's on the dollar bill and that this this rabble rousing revolutionary thing is about to smash itself to pieces on this wall that was our crumb and and it did it 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 did but it it left residues and when i was growing up in canada in the 70s it was all around us you know the the senior scouts were smoking hash at the lake and you know, there was stuff that was stuff that sort of went out, jean jackets and things, which lasted way too long in Canada. <laughs> but um, you know, it's immense. And so that meeting Terence in '97, '98, and then, in some ways, and I still feel it. Um, I was there to see him out. Uh, many of us did, but I often meet people who are on their way out and I don't know about it and I end up doing their legacy Jeff Raskin was one um Wes Clark was another one you know it's just a pattern and that's why I'm sitting with in a sense with Timothy Leary's collection here um and at one point I don't know it was before Terrence was gone or after because I had some conversations with him afterwards he said, carry it on, you know, keep telling the story. But tell your own story, is what he said. We were going to go on the road. I mean, he was. He wrote to Nancy Lunny at, at Esalen to set up for like February or March, spring of 2000, we were going to do our first workshop together at Esalen, and then that would help me launch. And then, But we were going to kind of go on the road where I would handle tech, and futures and space and all the things that he was learning from me. And then he would do hermeticism, you know, recipes, because I I knew nothing about, I still really know nothing about psychedelics, you know. But he he knew a lot. Um, he, he just was steeped in it, you know. He could talk about the uh, Voynich manuscript and the, all these juicy, wonderful things and all these bizarre theories about stoned apes and, you know, um, the Rosicrucian, this or that, or, you know, um, was it the fellow D in Prague? Yeah, John D. John and Kelly, D. Giordano Bruno. And I lived there. I mean, I lived in Prague. I never once spoke to Terrence about living in Prague, it would have been an interesting because we're both bohemophiles. I, I was living there from 90 to 94 and he visited there for the inter, inter, interpersonal psychology, whatever it was, the ITP meeting. It was either 94 or 96 and Ram Dass was there and there's a a nice video of them in a cafe connected to Obechny Doom, which was this, the civic opera house and talking, Ram Dass and Terence talking uh, and 
I missed that, but I was there before them. And if I'd only mentioned to Terrence that I'd lived in Prague, that would have been a wonderful conversation. That's why I was saying to you the other day that I really miss him. You know, there was so much opportunity to explore with him. And it could have gone so far. Um, But he was gone. He was on his way out. And we we had a conference for him in Hawaii in in September of of '99. It's called Alchemical Arts, and we built a virtual world. And I did a talk about all this. And uh, but his head was shaved. He'd already had some procedures, and um, it was goodbye to Terrence. And um, one story I'll relate, and then we'll sort of get off this <laughs> this subject. Um, so it came to the the final hour of the the final hour of the meeting. It was like three four days in this hotel that was going to be demolished, right? So they were serving us the last food they had, which every meal seemed to be uh, ham sandwiches. It's ham sandwiches! How delightful! Again, you know, this is buffet bar of ham sandwiches. <laughs> but these are heads, and these are people, the stoners that. Hey, it looks good to us, you know. Um, so we had, it was a great group. It was Tom Robbins and the Gray, it was the Grays there. I think they were there. And uh, Martina Hoffman and Robert Venosa and uh, many, many people. And Lorenzo, that's where I met Lorenzo Haggerty. Our, was, dear, who, our dear godfather. Our, our podfather. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 he was Larry Haggerty at the time, but that's where we met. We literally, I remember standing outside the hotel, just sort of in the front little foyer next to some tropical foliage, and talking to him. And he's writing this book called The Spirit of the Internet. This is September 1999, and he wanted to put me and and Galen in the book, and he did. Uh, but that he had been to Palenque, I think, in the 99 year or something, and then he had followed. Ter- he must have made an impression upon Terence or Ken Symington or Rob Montgomery because he was invited. This was an invitation-only meeting. And it had been planned beforehand, before they knew Terence was ill, and but it turned into the goodbye event. So we also had Constance Demby there, the great space-based, symphonic, you know, oceanic composer of, you know, space music. And she had shipped over the space base like by boat. It's this great big piece of metal that you hit with something and it's really quite impressive. But she was big in the New Age circuit. But she was going to close the meeting. And she actually played when we did the Terrence 2012 program in Sierra Madre. She also did the last thing that brought brought her for that because she had done this very last thing for Terrence. And as she finished, we all realized um, that's it. Everyone's just about to disperse. And somebody had the idea, let's clear out all the chairs in this big room, which is about to be just torn down. <laughs> and as there was a, a carpet. You can lie on the carpet. You can take a nap. You can send Terrence healing energy. We're going to put Terrence in the middle Have him sit there. I'm sure this was a little awkward for him, but, you know, hey, you know, it's also theater. And he's used to sitting in groups of people sitting around him, but this is different, right? Because he wasn't going to be speaking and holding forth and telling his stories. He was he was being 
the subject of a lot of pain or hopes or sadness. Um, and so people lay down, they lay down, they, they, they could take a nap, they could send them healing vibes, they could do what they wanted to do. As soon as my head hit the carpet, I just lay down. Uh, I think I lay toward him, I'm not sure. Um, as soon as my head hit the carpet, I went into endo trip. Boom. And these endo trips are my primary. They're my primary psychedelic. And I think that they're endogenously, endogenous, endogenous flushes of DMT. That's my uh, belief. Um, and I've done some tests on that that seem to verify that that's what that is. So I go boom into an endo trip. And it's a green plane. And there's Terrence sitting sort of folded up with his knees up. And there's just a green plane and an azure sky. That's it. No other people. And then I hear this sound. It's like whir, 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 whir sound. And, and I'm the observer sphere. That's how I do these things. I become this, just, this observer, just pure presence. But nothing else. I mean, just no, no other thoughts. Just observation. And I look up and I see this, this point coming down. And it reaches a sort of a halfway point where I can see glistening things around it. And I realize, oh, they're sort of like jewels or diamonds or something. They're like, they're like paste jewels, you know, these cheap things. But it's quite beautiful. And it's this egg-shaped thing. And it comes down and it hovers. And it's, you know, pretty sizable. It hovers there. There's this curving glass uh, screen with an unseen driver in sort of a front cockpit. And then there's a back seat with a plush red couch. And Terrence looks up at this thing, unfolds himself, steps into it. It sort of bounces because it's sort of a hover machine, you know. And and he lies back. And I, I think I caught him uh, lighting up, <laughs> which would make sense. And it, off it goes. You know, where, 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 where. And it goes up through the crystal veil. And you can just see the last of it disappear. And so that was it. And we were all sort of milling about the outer people gradually leaving the hotel. And I saw Terrence there, and there there was Robert Venosa. And I came over and said, Terrence, I'd like to share something with you that I saw. He said, you know, sure. And I shared this very story. And he turned to me when it was done, and he said, Ah, the getaway car. The getaway car. And it was, in a sense, uh, it was sort of, I figured it was an elven-driven thing. And then we posed for a picture that Galen took of, I think it was Terrence in the middle, Robert on one side, and me on the other side of Terrence. And that, those are the last words that we ever exchanged. Um, and... Uh, um, years later going to Burning Man, sort of doing the Terrence 2012 program, um, we did a sort of release of Terrence. If you listen to podcast 316, that's 316, it's mine and Dennis McKenna's efforts to tell some truths about Terrence that needed to come out that were quite disturbing for both of us. He knew them for years. I only had discovered them in 2011. I mean, we took it on ourselves to 
make these truths known to the community, and it generated quite a, I think I call it a love storm. It wasn't a firestorm, uh, but there were there were consequences to it. Um, but I remember um, at Burning Man in a, in a wonderful night, uh, and this is all sort of endogenous again. I suddenly had the flash of this this Fabergé egg limousine. And I realized it's sort of one of his Fabergé eggs, bejeweled, but it was in the shape of a limousine. And for some reason, what came to me was along the side were these elven scripts. So maybe it was a revisioning of this crazy thing. And the elven scripts, I could I could read them in elvish, it said, for a good time, call, and then there was elvish numbers. For a good time, call. You know, it's on the side of a limousine. This is what you see, right? Limousines in, in, in uh, Las Vegas or Manhattan or whatever. For a good time, call. And I said to myself, oh, and I gathered together a bunch of people. We're going out to this 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 art sculpture and I'm going back to Murray Man for the first time in years and maybe something this will happen again. This is the place where I'm going to call I'm gonna dial that number. Because I kind of made a a pronouncement to Terrence after all of the deep dive into Terrence McKenna and all of the pain that Dennis and I went through. It was it was excruciating. It was exhausting. Um Many a many-step process. Um, I decided to tell Terence that he owed me, and that in a certain time in the future, in a certain state, if I called him down, he would come. So I attempted to do this so at Burning Man. We have this very trip to mean like sculpture, two stories high, very beautiful. And I said, you know, he's going to appear in that second story because he's never going to want to be on the playa. Because of all the freaking people. This guy's a hermit. Right? He wants to be in an upstairs library. He wants to be away from all the mess and fuss and people wanting to talk to him and everything. But he will, he'll hang there. So I'm going to dial the number. And I just visualized this for a good time. And there were the elvish numbers. And I just one at a time lit them up in my mind's eye. And just waited. And of course... It didn't, nothing came down. I mean, there was not. But what I want to say, you know, into the airwaves here is we have dialed this number and we are experiencing our good times. We're expecting more. And Terrence is on the hook. And uh, by hook or by crook, we're going to uh, reintegrate him into this community because, like, what happened to me. In 2005, when I sat up, bolt upright in bed one night, I said, Terrence, you left too soon. I'm bringing you back. That led to the digitizing project and the cassettes and why the salon has 270 Terrence talks is because of that moment. Because Terrence did leave very suddenly. I think he was pulled out uh, suddenly uh, because of this incongruity that was occurring in his story and his life, but he left very suddenly. So we're gradually bringing him back. And, uh, but 
it's all for a good time. So that that's where I want to leave this uh, this story. We dialed the number. Our good times are rolling in. Yeah, I I want to say thank you for sharing. It's it's always a pleasure to talk to you. You're so welcome, Lex. And yeah. it's been a pleasure having you living here for off and on for the summer, doing this leery scanning. It's been it's been a joy. Um, and actually, the last question I should ask is if somebody wanted to hook up. Uh, and start listening to Levity Zone. Did, would you have uh, any episodes to recommend as favorites? Yeah, I think, um, and this will actually be my first appearance in the salon since I did the Melbourne, uh, the voiceover with the band in Melbourne. If people remember, Lorenzo called it something completely different. And he, he likened it to when he walked into a specific nightclub or bar in the East Village in the early 60s and they were they were doing this they were doing this poetics uh reading over music over live music somebody with a guitar electric guitar and everything and we did that in melbourne and i wanted to try to bring that format back because terence had done that with lost at last and he'd done that with stephen kent and he'd done this beautiful format of uh speaking and semi-rhyme rhyming over live music and so that's the last one. If you want to hear me on the salon, that's something completely different. Um, the Levity Zone uh, podcast number 50, which is called Fire in the Sky. I think people will like that. That We we did that at, um, <clears throat> that performance was done at, at Lightning in a Bottle with Android Don't, Jones doing live brush work um, and Val Santana doing the, the score, the music. And it, it was our... It was our really updated version of this format, which I'm about to do at the Eclipse Festival in a week and a half, um, where whole crew is going up there to do the next rendition. And then we're going to be at Playa Alchemist, uh, a 70-foot-tall pyramid on the Playa, one of the largest encloses, enclosed spaces ever made on the Playa. We have two shows. We have a Thursday and a Friday night show. So I am carrying on the tradition that the last performance I saw Terrence do was the Maritime Hall in December of 98 with Lost at Last doing his thing. And there's video of this online. And so in a sense, I'm really carrying it forward because we're, we're doing that format again, tell, doing my own stories, science and space and spirit and whatever I do. Um, and the Levity Zone has a lot of that. So there's... Uh, really kind of fun ones from symbiosis years ago, from Burning Man years ago, uh, stuff that I really care about, like vintage, uh, computer history, Bob Taylor, the interview of Bob Taylor, who created the world we live in, created the ARPANET, ran Xerox Park Computer Science Lab, which created everything that you use on a computer today, uh, and talking with this man that, that really did it. Um, that's episode one back in the last one, episode 57, which I just put up last week is a talk from the science of consciousness conference. I did a plenary talk following Deepak Chopra's talk and before Stuart Hameroff's talk, um, on how the origin of life relates to the, uh, to what consciousness is. And it's a very wonderfully spun up reductionist take on consciousness that 
flies in the face of a lot of beliefs that you know atoms have to be conscious and things like that but it it was an insight into a whole system that creates the entire living world and it was just a de novo downlink um, that happened uh, over the last six months and it's new and fresh stuff and I'm giving that talk again and a performance at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in San Jose in October so it's rolling I mean, this whole, the new ideas are rolling, um, the science is rolling, the Scientific American cover this month on our new theory of the origin of life is out. That was 40 years in development. And uh, Terrence would have loved hearing about all that. Um, but I'm rolling right now. I'm getting doing my own message, but it, it, it isn't necessarily about the hermeticism or psychedelics or kind of escapism, I, th I think it was more as direct engagement in the biosphere and in the human enterprise and its its its, its health and its future um, with powerful ideas that can shift it. So, um, yes, there are idiots in politics, but there's a lot of other good things going on that are the fu true future. And uh, America's part of that, even though it's falling apart constantly. And I think on that note of optimism, I'll say thank you so much. You're welcome, Lex. Thanks for listening to the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. To help us out, you can leave a review or rating on your favorite podcast service or share an episode with a friend. It really does make a difference. And to follow along with everything else we're working on, check out patreon.com slash nonsense.